Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha, joining us today, we have Dr. Justin Lee. Hi, Justin. Hi, Amanda. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for joining me today for this podcast. Yeah, it's an uh, honor to be a part of it. <laughs> Why don't we start with having you do a bio or introduction of yourself for our listeners? Yeah, so I am currently the co-director of research and the director of training at Autism Partnership Foundation, which is a nonprofit agency in uh, Seal Beach, California, that provides uh, research and and, uh, training academy for behavior analysts uh, for individuals diagnosed with autism. And just a brief history, I guess, I got my career started, I don't know, 18, 19 years ago where I began doing direct intervention, uh, behavioral intervention for individuals with autism, and then decided this was, you know, the path for me. I went to graduate school at the University of Kansas with Jim Sherman and Jan Sheldon, where I just fell in love with the field. And then since I've uh, gone and become really a researcher and a trainer and have done some speaking engagements here and there and really just passionate about the field of applied behavior analysis and ways we can always improve the field. Well, thank you for that introduction, and I have to say one of my first interactions with you, definitely I would use the word passionate. You have some pieces out there and some messages that you're always really passionate about, and I really gravitate towards towards that energy. So I'm excited again, like I said, to have you here. Today, um, one of the things that you had mentioned, an interest for you that we were going to talk about is ensuring a bright future. and. I imagine that means for our consumers, but also for our profession. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to speak to that. Yeah. First, I want to say thanks for calling me passionate. I think some people have called uh, booming or dominating when I talk or stuff like that. So I like the word passionate better. Um, and I think it really, I think it really comes from the passion of being working with uh, children with autism and working with their families and seeing children with autism just makes such uh, remarkable improvements when they get quality behavioral intervention. And I think over the past year, I've really been on this journey of even further getting the message across about the need for quality intervention, the need for good intervention. And it all came from watching a father speak at a conference uh, that we put on here at Autism Partnership Foundation. And the father was talking about his two children, uh, his two twin boys, who both are diagnosed with autism and their journey. And what would happen if they didn't get quality intervention, which they started out uh, not getting quality intervention, what would happen to their kid, their, his two kids, his two sons? And then going on to that they did get quality intervention and where they are today. And this father just had the means to make sure it happened. And knowing that a lot of families don't have this available, And so for me, I really want to see ways that we can improve intervention, improve the field, but most importantly, improve the lives of children diagnosed with autism and their families. And and so I've been going around and talking about this uh, frequently in the last year or so, but also uh, getting ready for this podcast, thinking of areas I think that we need to see improvement, areas that I'm hoping you or the listeners would really like uh, to see improvements or that we can make improvements. And so I've come up with a list and the stuff I bring is in no particular order, but just things that I see today that are kind of concerning. 
kind of alarming, kind of things where I see too many behavior interventionists or behavior technicians uh, doing these sort of behaviors that could harm them, could harm the field of applied behavior analysis, or more than uh, likely harm the clients that we serve. So I guess that's the premise. Is that a good place to go, Amanda, with what I'm going to be talking about? Absolutely. I think, as you know, I've also been in the field for practicing about the same amount of time that you have. And so although we've had different journeys, some of our experiences and the evolution of the practice, we've kind of ridden that journey parallel to one another. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. And so so the first thing where I'm concerned today is so often I will go consult to different home programs or school programs or clinic-based programs or just go observe them. And what I see is, unfortunately, not meaningful skills being taught to individuals with autism, regardless of age, just skills that are irrelevant, that are not going to increase or improve their overall quality of life. And I'm not the first one to echo this. I think a colleague of mine, Peter Gerhardt, talks about this all the time, about ensuring that you're teaching meaningful skills. But uh, you know, my earliest example is it was my first year in the University of Kansas when I was a graduate student and finally got to supervise a case. And I went out to this family's house about 45 minutes away from Lawrence. And they came, they, they were showing me their programs, very excited about their programming. And the, what they were doing was they were teaching Army man versus Marine man versus, uh, I guess, air pilot. It was Tom Cruise and like the Top Gun, uh, a picture of him in Top Gun. And they were very excited to this. And, you know, I was sitting there thinking about what I was going to do, what I was going to say. And so my first question is like, is there someone here in the armed services? Does that make sense if you're teaching this is an armed service family? No. I was then going asking, why would they, why? Why are they teaching it? And the only reason I said that just seemed like a good thing to do. It's a good expressive labeling or tacting program to work on. And so I saw this, you know, this happened in 15 years ago. And even today, I see things like teaching state capitals or teaching birds, bird breed, or birds, types of birds, dog breeds to children, not just in the research where we might have to do it for functional control, although I have a problem with teaching these skills in research, but seeing it in clinical practice where we're focusing on things like the difference of a Labrador versus uh, a Golden Retriever versus a Husky. And for me, this is problematic because it's problematic because the time that we have with the, our clients, we have to make the most meaningful t- uh, amount of quality teaching on quality programming as possible. And so like instead of teaching these kind of things, I think we need to teach more functional skills. We have to teach learning how to learn skills. Is this skill meaningful? Is this going to make a marked improvement in their life either today or tomorrow? And so often I don't see that being occurring. I see that we're just following a a curriculum book or a curriculum assessment to a T, and we're not really analyzing of what is important to the learner now and in the future. And so to preserve the field, to ensure that we're implementing quality intervention, and to help the lives of individuals with autism, I really encourage us as behavior analysts to start thinking about what is meaningful, to really get training, extensive training on curriculum and developmental norms. We cannot just be trained on, you know, just the procedures and the principles of applied behavior analysis. I think we need to start 
getting training on curriculum and those developmental norms. I can imagine you being in a similar situation. I have been in similar situations. Sometimes I'm working with behavior analysts. Sometimes I'm working with other professionals in those situations. And one of the things that I've made sure that I do, that I heard you suggest and model, is you ask the question first. So, hey, why are we teaching this? Is there, is there some relevance? And I really, really love that that was a part of your explanation because I might just be like, why are you doing this? You know, like that's yeah. not the right question. The right question is, hey, hey, tell me where this came from. And if it's really like, well, the program book I'm following or the, the assessment guide I'm doing says they have to label and discriminate, it's what I'm hearing you say. It's really that call to action of having them label and discriminate things that are socially significant, things that are meaningful and relevant to the individual. So I'm with you. I'm with you on that, um, most definitely. How do you think people start to develop that? You mentioned getting some training in curriculum. I myself have a background in education and teaching, so I feel like I got a lot of that training, but not all behavior analysts do. Yeah, I, I think I think there's a couple ways that this happens. I think one is buying as many different curriculum books out there. And so if you were to go to my uh, personal library in my house, it's filled with curriculum books from the 60s uh, until today. Uh, and I just constantly am wanting to buy the curriculum books. When I'm at conferences, I want to go to talks on curriculum and developmental norms, and I think that can help. I think the third thing is you are not overly biased in a certain camp. And I think that what we see in the field of behavior analysis is there's different camps or divisions of behavior analysis. So you have people who are in the peak camp or you have people in the applied verbal behavior camp or the LOVOS camp, and I get into a whole different discussion of I don't know what that means. But but you have people in camps and they're unwilling to go and to look at what the other camp is doing or dismissive of the other camp. And so I think one thing to do is if you find yourself in a camp, if you find yourself trained by one of these camps, which is fine, that you will be open to going into the other, the other professionals who have great ideas and looking at their curriculum. I think looking, I think the other thing to do is go and mentor with a teacher, mentor with either a, a special education teacher or a general a classroom teacher, because they're great at knowing developmental norms and what's being taught and what's meaningful. And so I think expanding the training out of the typical CEUs we get is going to be really helpful uh, for helping improve the lives of individuals with autism. Well, I think that makes a lot of good sense, and you also provided multiple ways in which people could do that. So I, I personally appreciate when we have strategies and suggestions and solutions and not just, you know, areas of, of concern. But you also have some other areas that you, that you can elaborate on or that you think contribute to helping us ensure a bright future. What are some of those other ones? Yeah, I, I do have a couple more that I think are important. And I do want to say, I think I'm glad you said it. Some of the things are when I provide an area of concern, I'm hoping that I'm providing solutions for the field. It's just not that I'm being Eeyore's and saying this is a concern, let's not, let's not address it or how we address it. I'm hoping that the concerns come across more that here are solutions, ways we can improve. I, I think another thing that I am seeing out there today, which goes, they all go kind of hand in hand, 
is just adherence to rigid protocols, that we're adhering to the protocol and we're not having flexibility in moving away from certain protocols. So, for example, we might always, if we're doing discrete trial teaching, we might fall to the letter of the law a most to least prompting strategy. Or we might provide the instruction, the same instructions through every trial. So we might say, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, and so on and so on. And our technician or our interventionists or BCBAs, BCABAs, or other behavior analysts who are not certified, they will follow protocols without ever making a change to that protocol or waiting a couple of weeks until a supervisor comes out to make a change. And so the problem for me with this is that we don't change these protocols. When we are, don't individualize, we're missing those teachable moments. We're not individualizing learning for our students or our clients. And so I think it's really, really important that we uh, have protocols, but we're not static. We're not, we're not just sticking with that protocol. We can be flexible in the protocol so we can make changes in the moment based on environmental factors based upon the learners responding or the learners attending or if the learners engaging in any aberrant behavior or the learners' health, emotional or physical health, past data, that we can have protocols, but they're not static protocols. They're very flexible protocols. And so for me, I think a concern is that I do see this rigid adherence to uh, static protocols, but they're not changing based upon the learners' needs. So... When I first introduced to the field, there was the no-no yes or prompting, right? Like we couldn't get more than two no's and everything was good job and everything was do this. And that's just how I was trained. And the child I worked with made tremendous gains and it's what propelled me wanting to, to actually pursue behavior analysis. And I learned then that although that's what I was doing, that still wasn't quite up to par with the best of what we had. I mean, it wasn't, right, even though we've evolved a lot since then, and it was still effective. So I just want to kind of echo back your message to listeners that you can do these things and you can achieve effects, but are you achieving efficient effects? Are we making the most of sometimes very limited time that we have with, with these clients? Okay, you mentioned going to conferences, and and definitely I love the idea of partnering and mentoring with teachers and getting an understanding there. When a behavior analyst, let's say in training, didn't get multiple experiences, how do how does one teach themselves flexibility? Yeah, so I'll come to that in a second because I want to go off a point that you just made. You made it elegantly and, and really well. First, in terms of when you do these adherence to rigid protocols, you're going to see an effect. And it's not like doing nothing or doing a procedure that has no evidence to it. You're going to see an effect. But when you do what we call a progressive model of ABA or, as I was talking about, a flexible protocol, what you're going to see is a better effect. And so my uh, my former doctoral student, she just defended her Ph.D. four days ago, uh, did a study on this, a, a package of the static protocol to this flexible protocol. And what she found was that both were statistically significant, making improvements on teaching expressive labels, but that when you did the flexible protocol, the flexible uh, manner, that the improvements were much better. So there are data behind my assertions here. Uh, it's not bad if you do the uh, the static protocol. It's just not the best. It's not in the best interest of the client, and we can be doing better. We should be aiming to do better. In terms of training, I think it depends where you're at. 
I think once again, I'm going to hammer. I know it's, it's going to sound, I guess, a little repetitive for now. Go and see other people's work. I, I you know, it's not, sometimes concerning when I'm at ABAI or a, a regional a, a state conference like Calaba or Babbitt, and people are just going to the same talks. They're hanging out with the same groups. And so they just hear the same information, so they live inside a bubble. I think going towards people who do do uh, flexible kind of protocols is really important. Um, so doing that in terms of like Peter Gerhardt is brilliant at this. He's doing flexible protocols for adolescents and adults, going and listening to him speak or going to Mary Jane Weiss and listening to her speak. These are the examples of things you can do from the start. If you're young in your career, I think you need to partner up and get additional training. And, you know, I think one thing I hear all too often is, you know, uh, young professionals wanting to get their, their certification as quickly as possible, wanting to get out in a year or two and then, you know, take the test and be say that they're certified behavior analyst. And for me, I think it's like you have to recognize there's additional uh, training opportunities and get those additional training opportunities. For example, at Autism Partnership Foundation, we offer an academy where people come for two years to get trained on how to be flexible, and they get extensive training. And these are people who have master's degrees, they're BCBAs, some are in doctoral programs, and they struggle a little bit through it. But at the end of the day, they get better at it. If you can't do that, I'm not making a pitch for everyone doing that. I'm, right now, I don't have any spots for it, so I'm not really doing a sales pitch here. But if you can't do that, then go to people that you respect that are flexible and see if you can partner up with them. I know, for example, like you and I, Amanda, we talk about things all the time, and, and that's beneficial for both of us. I think like if you are interested in an area and they do it better than that kind of rigid adherence, go contact them. Go see if you can, you know, go take them out to lunch or take them out to a coffee. Build a relationship with them and then maybe do site visits and go where they work and see if you can watch and observe what they're doing and then take that home and continue that relationship, continue that ongoing training and mentorship. I also really like, Justin, how you threw in there the fact that we talk, you and me, and that we are – um, I think constantly challenging each other and in a positive way. And I always come out of any of our conversations with, with new ideas and more thought. And I just, I want to just, again, echo that back to the listeners. Um, you can be in the field 20 years and have PhDs and you need each other. We need each other. So thank you again, of course, for being on this podcast and for also being, you know, an accessible colleague in our field, Justin, I appreciate that. Well, thanks. I mean, I think this whole field is about relationships and it's forming those relationships, which I guess gets me to my third point, is that I think what we've lost in the field, and I'm not sure if I have a solution for this, uh, what I think we've lost in the field is professional discourse, where people can have differing opinions but uh, can still get along and still can talk about their differing opinions. So, for example, I I'm going to bring up a story with you, Amanda. I hope that's okay. Um, I, I think one of the first times you heard me speak, or the one of the times we had the most time together, I was at ABAI, as you were, and I was doing my talk about the concerns with the registered behavior technician. And I was, at the very least, passionate, if not, once again, booming. Um, I was, you know, talking about my concerns, and you had some a different perspective. It's not that you disagreed 
or that you were angry with me. You just had some questions and wanted to talk about it more. And what, how you handled it was you asked if we could speak afterwards. And afterwards, you know, later that night, I think we talked about it and you gave me your perspective. I gave you my perspective. And we were able to have that meaningful communication. I know others in the audience probably stormed out. Now then the audience says, well, uh, Justin doesn't know what he's talking about. Or Justin doesn't have the knowledge of uh, regulations and standards. So he's, it's his opinion is not needed. And that's the wrong way to do it. And uh, the right way is what you did and what the others do. Unfortunately, today, I think in social media a lot of times, and by social media, I mean like Facebook groups or, or other groups, is that someone says something, provides a recommendation, and others give feedback. Now, the feedback might not be you know, fluffy feedback. It might be direct feedback. It might be in a sentence or two. But then immediately people are saying, I feel attacked. I'm not going to comment anymore. Versus, okay, here's a perspective. Let's talk about it. And I'm really worried that we have lost the ability to have that kind of conversation, tough conversation. We've lost the ability to have arguments with each other and be okay with arguments with each other. And, and I think about it, and I think back to my mentor, Jim Sherman. I know a lot of the listeners probably don't know who Jim Sherman is. Uh, I advise you to Google him and put ABA out there. He was one of the original people in the field. He was out with Bijou. And his, my favorite stories of listening to him was he shared an office as a graduate student with another graduate student I'm sure your listeners have heard of, is Todd Risley. And they would get in fights, you'd say, almost daily. They would get in fights daily about the principles of our science or what was to become our science. And then after the arguments and fights, because they had different opinions, they would pack up their bags and they would walk to the bar to each other and get a beer. And then they would be civil. And it's not that they hated each other. It's not that they were upset that they disagreed. They just disagreed. And they were okay and comfortable doing it. I wish we got to that point where we can have these disagreements, where people can be passionate about their side, and that others would listen to it, maybe not agree, but engage in the conversation versus saying, you know what, you shouldn't give that feedback. And so to me, this is something I see we're going away from. And I don't know how to stop it versus maybe during education training, during master's programs, we have to incorporate it more as part of master's programs where people get that feedback on an ongoing basis. I love that you shared the story of how we really kind of met or how we really came to know each other. And I, I mean, I went to that, that talk, Justin, knowing that it was going to be received by some as provocative, right? If not just passionate. And I was, let me hear it. And for me, my circumstance had changed. I was no longer living in Massachusetts. I'm living in Hawaii. And so I also really appreciated how, how you said earlier, like, it depends where you're at, like what you have, who you have access to, what you have as resources, what that means, where you're at. And I went up to you. I remember distinctly going up to you and saying like, Hey, what do you like to to drink or like, like, can I meet you? Can we meet up later? Can we talk at, you know, at the bar or something? And you were, you were very nice and cordial. I think maybe I caught you a little off guard. You were like, sure. Okay. And Lori Unum, it was actually Lori. I remember vividly, I was at the bar and I was saying, Hey, I want to talk to, I want to talk to Justin later. Cause I have some thoughts about what he was sharing. And she says, Justin, and she sees you over at another table, come over here. So it does come down, I think in a lot of ways to relationships, to openness, 
and to to being willing to have the discourse. I also wonder, though, and, and have a question for you on this, like, this is not just specific to the field of behavior analysis. In my, in my experiences, we're having a harder time in society talking politely to one another about differing and, and dissenting opinions. Do you feel that this has kind of always been something happening in the field, or is it maybe more magnified with our current social situation? Uh, that's a great question. And, and the problem with society is I don't know how it is in other countries around the world if this is a problem. I think there is a problem here in the United States. I mean, and not even getting in political sides, but just go watch CNN one night and then switch over to Fox News. And just the way that people talk about each other, the same kind of side of the argument, is not cordial. It's not, it's not even a debate. It's just that their side is completely right and they don't want to listen to the other side. And I think, it's a, I think it is a societal issue. I think it's a social media issue too. I think these Facebook groups are great. I think they offer a lot, but I think people are not used to getting the feedback. I think people are not used to getting feedback if something's right or wrong. I remember occasionally golf, and I remember being on a, a what is a driving range, and my old coach, uh, baseball coach in high school, I saw him. I said, "Hey, Coach Claybo, how are you doing?" And you know, started talking to him. I said, "Are you still coaching?" Because last I heard two years ago, I was coaching. This was, you know, my high school baseball coach of 20 years ago. And he said, no, I stopped coaching because you can't. Yeah, and I said, why? And he said, because you can't give kids feedback anymore. If you give kids feedback on their, uh, their arm angle when they're pitching, the parents are yelling at you. If you give feedback on their batting stance, they're yelling at you and I don't have to listen. And if, I, if, and if you keep yelling, I'm going to go to the administration. And he said, he's had enough. So I think part of the problem is, as a society, we're not as good at getting feedback anymore. Maybe the feedback is to try to make you better, to give you a different perspective. I mean, I don't particularly like being told that I'm doing something wrong, and I'm pretty sure most people don't. But as I was just discussing with a friend this morning, I said, you know, I can take criticism as long as it comes from a place of compassion. I also recently, we had a podcast episode with Dr. Geller, Scott Geller, and he focuses a lot about how do we use the principles of behavioral science to teach people to care about each other. And I think these, I think these conversations are connected. So relationships, you know, they're important. And you mentioned go to conferences, reach out, talk to other people. And I would just suggest to the listeners, don't, don't be afraid of others. Um, most of us, most people that I speak to in the field, like we, we welcome people who are interested, especially if it's coming from a place of learning and growing versus someone coming to be like, hey, Amanda, I want to take up your time to tell you all the things I don't like about you. I'd be like, you know, maybe you could just put that in an email. <laughs> yeah. Of course, the, the feedback is not synonymous with, you know, rejection. I don't mean it quite like that. Yeah, I think the feedback is trying to make someone better, giving someone a different point of view. And it should not be a personal attack. It should not be anything that's, you know, personally coming across. It's just a point of view. Well, I know you do a lot of traveling as well, and you're not just talking about the area in which you work. I mean, you've, you've had, I think, an advantage of being able to see what services look like, what the science looks like, who's doing whatever, you know, they're doing and how it's being done. How do you think or how has traveling and seeing this global um, perspective shaped your practices? 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's shaped my perspective a lot in how I talk and realizing that people operate under different contingencies and there's different environmental variables of what they can do and, and cannot do. There's places with, within the United States, and I travel internationally uh, somewhat frequently, uh, that they just have no access to service providers. There's not an RBT within 100 miles. There's not a BCBA or very few within 100 miles. And so my perspective is being patient with it. I think, I think as you said in one of the, my earlier points, is I ask a lot of why questions. I, I guess I'm doing a functional assessment always of the environment. And I'm trying to figure out why certain things are being done. I'm not just there to show them the data and say, change it this way, or to say, this is not the best way to do it. I want to find out why, what they're operating under, so that I can start manipulating uh, manipulating those contingencies for them so I can start making their lives uh, a little better. Now, in terms of what it also has taught me is I'm pretty patient. And so I know it doesn't come across that way when I give talks because I'm trying to get points across, you know, in 20 minutes or in 50 minutes and have to get the point across to, you know, 100 people or 10 people or 700 people, whoever's in the room at the time. But in terms of my practice and when I'm working with a research member or a graduate student or a technician or behavior analyst, to me it's a shaping process. To me it's understanding uh, the, the, the big goal for that therapist, that organization, that researcher, and how we can get to that big goal and having little steps along the way to reach that big goal. Because my job in most cases is not just to be there for, you know, five minutes. My job is to, you know, make long-term success. And to do that, I have to be patient. I have to shape that person uh, to, to become the best behavior analyst or the best technician possible. Well, we need the best that we can that we can get, and we need even better than that because I want to see our field not just rise to the level of the the previous levels of exceptionality. In order to really propel us forward, we're going to need to continue to create and to carve out that really passionate path. How do you think that people can try to get past situations where those relationships maybe aren't there, or how do we start to create that community? Of conversation. Do you have other suggestions for people who who are in the field who want to do what you're suggesting? So, I mean, it's a really good question, Amanda. I, and I, you know, I think obviously the relationships are one. I think uh, start attending conferences on the other thing. Start just becoming an uh, an everyday learner. And by an everyday learner, I mean you're picking up new things. So you know, going instead of getting all your CUs from online or home. Uh, go and go to a conference and, and be part of that conference. I think reading nonstop, reading curriculum books, reading the articles that people put out, reading, reading nonstop of what's going on is absolutely critical. Uh, I, I think that that's some of the ways. I think, you know, I, I go back to the relationships. It's hard for me to go away from that, but create those on social media, create, create, uh, think tanks and work groups that you guys can come together and have phone calls with. So often people are isolated. I think if we can create that kind of culture and community, it's going to be for the better, for the betterment of our field and for the, the, the clients that we serve. I also appreciate how we talked about there are some downsides to social media and interactions 
but how you can really capitalize off them to create those relationships. We'll see sometimes people saying a lot more earlier on, um, where do I get this information? How do I help this client? Who can give me advice on this? Not appropriate. But then when we now we're seeing, hey, where's this article? Hey, I found this. Does anybody know who I can reach out to? Who can have a conversation with me offline about this? It gives us access to people all over the world. And I mean, literally living on an island <laughs> where yeah. whether people feel like they do, it's those relationships and these conversations that keep me, you know, interested in moving forward. So um, I really, again, appreciate you joining today to talk about your passion. And before yes. we end the call, I wanted to give you an opportunity to add any additional points or to mention any resources or if there's any shout outs you want to give or plug anything, please, by all means, feel free to do that. Yeah, I guess I guess when I'm thinking of the whole thing, it comes to training. And I think it's the responsibility of the trainee to not be finished with training until he or she feels confident that they are, can be competently implement the procedures. And for the supervisor, it comes down to not just pushing people through based on time, but rather on performance and making sure that your trainee can implement the procedures with a high degree of fidelity and understand the principles behind those procedures. I think for me, you know, the reason I get up every day and do this is for those individuals with autism and, and their families and trying to make improvements in their lives. That's why I got in the field. That's why, you know, I'm doing a podcast with you today and I've been on a dissertation earlier today. What I encourage is I want everyone to really just remember why we got in this field. We got in this field to make meaningful improvements in the lives of individuals diagnosed with autism and their families or for uh, individuals with developmental disabilities or for whatever uh, field you're in, remember your clients and, and our duty to serve them as best we can. And so for me, it's making sure that you're well-trained in our principles and, and the clients that we're working with and their, uh, their characteristics and stuff like that. So uh, I guess for the final pitch, you know, what we're promoting and what I talk about a lot of is progressive ABA. You can find this by Googling Autism Partnership Foundation and going to our website. You could also go and follow me uh, on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. I'm now doing some more social media, and my handle is at AuthenticABA. So uh, that's ways you can follow what we're doing. And, you know, I always like to guess in – you know, thanking my research team, Joe Sheon, Julia Ferguson, Christine Milne for the work that they do, and thanking everyone at Autism Partnership, uh, both in Seal Beach and internationally for the work that they do, because that's what inspires me. And then obviously thanking you uh, for having me on this podcast today. Oh, absolutely, Justin. And I'm going to have you back on the podcast because I think we have more conversations to be had. Um, and I appreciate you starting us down the path of discussing relationships. I'm excited where our field can go, and I see a large uh, performance improvement potential. And so um, I look forward to working with you together. Yeah, I, <laughs> as do I, and please have me back whenever you would like me to come back. <laughs> Wonderful. And so for anyone who's interested in learning more, I'll post those links and get the information for how to connect with Justin at Authentic ABA online. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about applied behavior analysis, you can do so by visiting www.behaviorbabe.com. 